This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hey everyone, welcome back to a new episode of Inside China Tech. I am Zen Su, a technology reporter with the South China Morning Post. So if you don't know, next week the MWC is happening in Barcelona, Spain. That is the Mobile World Congress, and it is the largest industry event for anything and everything to do with mobile. Today I have with me Brian Ma, who is the Vice President of Client Devices Research at IDC Asia Pacific. So if you don't know, Brian is a massive phone geek. He knows everything and anything there is to know about. Smartphone brands. So today we've had a very intense conversation about foldables, about 5G, about how Chinese smartphone brands managed to climb their way to the top to become some of the world's largest smartphone suppliers. And yeah, Brian will be、uh, headed to NWC next week, so he has a lot to share about what he's expecting to see, what are the exciting technology that all these phone companies are prepared to release. So yeah, let's get into it. Tell us, Brian, what can we expect from Chinese phone brands this year at the MWC in Spain? Sure,、uh, and I might even argue that the what I'll what I'll offer is not unique to just the Chinese phone brands. You'll see others as well. But obviously, you,、uh, we'll hear a lot around 5G.、Uh, we'll also hear a lot around foldables.、Um, and as usual,、uh, it's almost like a An ongoing thing every year, or at least in the past few years, there's always a lot of emphasis on photography and different ways to approach that.、Uh, we will probably hear quite a bit about how AI fits into that, particularly around photography as well,、uh, and maybe even some stuff around, let's say, gaming、uh, phones here and there.、Uh, but yeah, I think、uh, it's it's definitely not, there's not going to be any shortage of interesting things going on. I think the industry's been worried a lot about. Oh, has all the innovation left the smartphone space? The market has flattened out, which is true. I mean, we the market contracted three percent last year,、um, but I would argue there's there isn't any shortage of innovation. I think the industry still really is excited. They're making a lot of investments into those various areas that I mentioned, and in particular this year, I think we'll hear a lot. Uh, about 5G and foldables in particular. I mean, you just look at what Samsung had launched last night、um, with their foldables.、Uh, you look at, you know, Xiaomi has been teasing some stuff.、Uh, in fact, I think that maybe something, you know, they they of course haven't confirmed anything, but they've got a, a global launch coming up at MWC the day before MWC, which presumably will be a global launch of the Mi 9、uh, that they launched in China just a few days ago. But I'm I suspect, or rather, I should say, I won't be surprised if they also do some kind of a preview, in-person preview of、uh, their foldable. Right? They've already kind of leaked some of it in social media a few weeks ago.、Uh, it will be interesting to see if they've got a device that they can show in person in Barcelona.、Uh, in fact, it's this weekend, this coming Sunday, they'll be doing their launch. So Ryan, you've you've talked a lot about foldables, and what exactly is a foldable, and why is that so significant? Sure. So、uh, you know, and it's funny because 
I've mentioned Foldable so many times to customers and folks in the industry over the past few weeks, and the number of responses that I got saying, hey, you know what? We've had foldables for a long time. They're called flip phones, right? They're those old school phones or those old Nokia communicators. To be clear, we're not talking about that from a foldable perspective. The big difference is that we're talking about a foldable screen, right? One entire contiguous screen that folds in half. And so what you then get is basically a tablet-sized screen that could fold in half and be just as pocketable as your existing phone today. Um, that's basically what everyone's kind of chasing after. It's this great idea, right? Suddenly I can have this gigantic screen without having actually having to carry a gigantic screen uh, in my pocket. Um, and in theory, that can change things quite a bit, right? What else can you do with a much larger screen, whether it's around videos, around maps, whatever other applications it may be? Um, does it potentially even impact you know, there's a there's probably a direct impact on the tablet market. Could it potentially even impact the PC market? How does this uh, potentially change the way we do things uh, beyond just the regular portrait size, you know, five inch, five or six inch uh, portrait mode screens that we're used to today? It opens up a different way with which we would interact with our devices and could potentially be, you know, I, I won't be surprised if there's some new interesting usage models or different ways that people end up using devices now that you can suddenly expand this large uh, type of screen. So who really is leading the charge for this foldable sort of movement? Of the big names, obviously Samsung is the big one that we just saw last night, right? And finally you had a big, large-scale, credible company with you know, a lot of engineering and design chops as well as manufacturing chops. Uh, and not to mention component background, right? This, a lot of this comes from their display division as well, too. Um, so a lot of it's coming from them. But of course, prior to prior to Samsung, there was a small company out of China called Royal R O Y O L E uh, that's been showing a product uh, for the past few months and was showing it at CES. The design is a bit different. The screen is on the outside rather than on the inside, but. Uh, they've had that there, and they will be at MWC this year, so it'll be good to, to take a look at that as well, too. Uh, Xiaomi has been hinting at some as well. They, they've shown on social media one that actually has two folds, uh, which is kind of interesting. It's kind of like a, I guess you could say a wallet, a trifold wallet kind of a design. Um, uh, Lenovo has been, actually for a few years now, a good number of years ago, Lenovo had a tech world conference. They had their own... Uh, basically a showcase event where they showcased all the various technologies that they had, one of which was actually a foldable phone. Uh, they never brought it to production, and, and in theory, there's, or rumors are they're still working on something. Uh, but Lenovo's actually been working on this for a while, um, and uh, rumor is Huawei may have something that they'll be showing off in Barcelona this weekend as well, too. If you take a look at the, you know, the invitation that they've sent out for their event, it suggests they may be showing something there. Um, and I won't be surprised if we see quite a few others as well, too. I mean, I think, like I said, the the idea of a foldable phone, and in fact, for that matter, foldable screens actually have been uh, around for a while. It's just that nobody's actually, we, we're finally reaching that stage where, um, where OEMs, where the system builders themselves have finally built into a product that they feel they're, they're ready to release. Um, and so we're finally at that year where we could start moving ahead with this. Now, having said that, I think it's also important to tame our expectations on where this market can go, right? Uh, I think a lot of people are certainly dazzled by what Samsung showed last night. Um, and even if it costs a very high amount, there's going to be early adopters that will buy it. But I think there's a lot of there's still a lot that needs to be overcome here, right? When you look at that foldable phones, there's several challenges 
uh, in these very early days that still need to be addressed. The obvious stuff is from the hardware side. What is the what is the production yield like? What is the reliability of that hinge when you keep folding it back and forth? Uh, what's the battery life going to be like now that you have, suddenly have this much bigger, gigantic screen that you've got to power? Um, is there a little crease in between as well, too? Does that make a, a difference? Um, uh, and, of course, that high price tag, right, which will eventually come down uh, down in prices in time, right? Uh, I think a lot of reactions to the Samsung news last night was, oh, this is a $2,000 product. Who's going to spend $2,000 on our phone? It's a valid comment, but keep in mind that notebooks just, you know, a little over a decade ago used to cost $2,000 as well, right? And so you'll have the early adopters. The component prices will naturally come down uh, as as the industry scales uh, over time. It, I mean, granted, it, it could take five, 10 years before we get there, but they'll come down. Uh, but I think the other thing that a lot of folks tend to overlook when we think about foldables is looking beyond just the hardware problems. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges is actually from a software perspective, particularly apps. Right. If you think about most apps today, they are written for a portrait mode, five or six inch screen, uh, not necessarily a tablet size landscape, uh, large size screen. In fact, if you think about Android tablets, they've been struggling for a very long time. Um, and one big reason for that is because there haven't really been that many Android apps that are optimized for a landscape or, or rather for a tablet size screen, I should say. So, um, how is you know how easy will it be for Google and the rest of the ecosystem providers to m motivate the developers to to write to the screen? Now, I think the good thing is the product itself that Samsung announced last night was so interesting that you will get app developers interested. I think you are going to see some some folks writing uh, and thinking about how they can. Uh, leverage that additional real estate. Uh, even Samsung announced last night, they already had a number of uh, key applications already becoming more optimized for the screen, including WhatsApp and, and other ones. So we're already starting to get the ball moving on this. But again, this kind of ecosystem change doesn't happen overnight. This is something that could take a number of years um, before it really settles down. So I guess the point that I'm making here is that you know, as, as cool as the foldable may be, um, I think, and, and as much as they'll probably get quite a bit of attention in the upcoming years, I don't expect it to be a mass market product in the next few years, or at least next one or two years yet. Uh, this is something that takes time to settle. Uh, it is something that will be an early adopter, uh, you know, a gadget geek, if you will, or at least a developer kind of a tool. It'll be a developer platform for a while. We need to kind of get this ecosystem moving, but at least... The first horses are out of the gate, if you will. We just need to, to give it time to let this settle in. Okay, I guess the question is, will this foldable screen prove to be a game changer in terms of, say, for the top, the world's top smartphone brands? Like, as we know right now, like Samsung is number one, and like, subsequently, a lot of that's like Huawei, Oppo, Xiaomi. Um, will this sort of like say Samsung's innovation, if, if they're clearly right now super confident, like you know they've already presented a product, will this sort of switch things up in terms of global smartphone shipments or rankings? Is there an, an impact on that? Short term, no. Long term, potentially, yes. So short term, it ties to that earlier comment I made, right? This is not something that happens overnight. So it's not going to change the fortunes of these companies overnight. Um, but what does get interesting is how the industry as a whole may potentially change. And is there an early mover advantage in this, right? I think what's interesting about this space is 
even these hardware designs, I, it's still not clear what is the optimal way to do it. Samsung did one that folds like a book where the screen is on the inside. Royal did one that's on the outside. There's some that might actually pivot on the horizontal axis rather than vertical axis. Do you do multiple screens? And so if you think about that, software developers have to, you know, there's a lot of different configurations they need to think about here. And that's that's not what they want to do because they can't get any scale out of that, right? So is there an early, is there a particular design that works best for this no one knows the answer to that yet but if there is one that gets settled in early as that that okay this is the established standard and then everyone starts writing applications for that then that helps to potentially cement a particular vendor's position who is that going to be it's way too early to tell but i would say that i i am rather i think samsung's got the they're on the right path here i think that that inside book fold with the dual outside screen seems to make a lot of practical sense, but we'll, we'll see if that really turns out to be the right way to use it. Mm. So um, Samsung's still number one right now, but you know, like maybe as say like 10 years ago, um, you know, two, three, four, five, these were not really dominated by Chinese brands. Right now in the top five, we have companies like Huawei and Oppo and Xiaomi. And my question really is how did these Chinese phone brands basically climb their way to the top like before Chinese phone brands were labeled as copycats like and arguably they might still be labeled that I think some people often say Xiaomi is a big copycat of Apple but basically how did they claw their way to the top sure sure and actually just to that point first about being a copycat yeah I would say even just even just a day or two ago, I saw, I think, a few pieces criticizing Xiaomi for copying Apple's wallpaper or something like that. So um, that, unfortunately, that that the I think a lot of the phone brands are tainted with that reputation, and that's not an easy reputation to overcome. Uh, but uh, there are good examples of those that have turned around their perception, at least in certain markets. I think Huawei is probably one of the best examples of that, particularly in its home market of China. Um, a good number of years ago, even as a consumer in China, uh, one would be embarrassed to carry a Huawei phone. It was considered to be a low-end, poor-quality product. But Huawei has really turned its image around in China. They've been uh, a lot of the messaging uh, that has resonated with buyers there has been about their technical superiority of their products. Right, a few years ago, it was about antenna signal strength reception. Let's say when you're in the basement parking lot of a high-rise building. If you put an iPhone right next to a Huawei phone, you get better signal reception out of the Huawei uh, device. And that message really resonated with a lot of buyers. And then, you know, fast forward a bit, you get things like, um, you know, Huawei's talking about multiple camera lenses. You get things like Huawei recently, what they're doing is something they're calling GPU Turbo, which is a predictive way of drawing triangles for games, for mobile games. Um, and that messaging has really worked out well for Huawei, such that today, uh, those same consumers that would have been embarrassed to have that Huawei phone a few years ago are now very proud to have that Huawei phone because it's got it's perceived to be technologically superior. Now, obviously, recent nationalism, or I should say trade tensions around the world, uh, help fuel a bit of nationalism that in turn 
works out very well for Huawei too. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the uh, another big part of this is also simply another big part of that pride, like I mentioned, uh, is simply the perception that Huawei uh, has that technological uh, superiority in some of these areas that make it one of the best phones out there. And what do you know, by the way? Um, you know, while Apple is struggling in China with these very high price points and incidentally being perceived as products that, hey, you know what, really aren't that different in the end. Um, who's there to kind of pick up the scraps and all that? Huawei happens to land right there where, you know, they've got a product that happens to be just a little cheaper than the iPhone. It's not at that $1,000 price point. It's at that $700 price point. It also happens to have the uh, perception of being, you know, having a lot of technical uh, advantages or superiorities. And by the way, yeah, there's a bit of nationalism fueling that too. So that all helps to fuel uh, Huawei's, um, you know, solid ground, I guess, in China. Now, I think when we start looking overseas then, right, I think that's also why you'll see more and more of that messaging from Huawei, even as it goes overseas to markets like Western Europe. Uh, that's why they talk a lot about these multiple camera lenses or, you know, I think a lot of the stuff they've been doing recently was, oh, well, we were the first with a seven nanometer, seven nanometer AI uh, enabled silicon or chip uh, within our phone. So, uh, they're increasingly relying more and more on that kind of messaging. And it's not just Huawei either, right? If you look at Oppo, if you look at Xiaomi, Xiaomi, of course, was one of the first with the bezel-less phone when they did the Mi Mix. Uh, Oppo, for instance, one of the things that they did at MWC two years ago was they showed a, uh, a an optical zoom lens using a kind of a periscope design, if you will. And, and the rumor is uh, by this weekend, they will be showing something that hopefully will be more production ready. I think they just uh, leaked on social media a day or two ago, you know, how they could do a 10 times optical zoom rather than the digital zoom that most cameras do. So there's quite a bit of innovation um, going on here. And I guess the shorter answer to your original question in a very long winded way was that um, uh, a lot of it does come down to engineering chops. These guys are very, very aggressive in uh, in engineering and design. Uh, arguably, that's kind of why Samsung's launch event to me was so significant because Samsung kind of lost that edge, you could argue. A lot of these Chinese vendors were faster than Samsung in getting to uh, a lot of these various areas, including multiple camera lenses and um, uh, you know bezel-like or nearly bezel-free designs and that kind of thing. Um, Last night was finally Samsung's chance to say to the global stage, you know what, hey, we've got innovation too. Check out this foldable phone, check out the stuff we're doing in cameras as well too, uh, and that kind of thing. So I think it'll be interesting to see that uh, there's gonna be a lot of uh, chest thumping, if you will, about look, this is how fast I was to this particular technology, this is how great our products are. Um, because at least in the case of some of these vendors like Huawei, they they've been able to monetize on that. It's it's worked out well in their messaging for them uh, in their home market. And even for other guys like Oppo and Vivo and these other guys, um, you know, as much as they may be more of a mid-range or low-end play, uh, these guys are able to still deliver innovation, if you will, at a affordable price point. And that's the other thing that, that's been disruptive to the likes of Apple and Samsung. You've got these mid-range players coming in at three, four, five hundred dollars or in many cases less than that uh, and being able to deliver uh, nearly flagship-like features at significantly lower prices. And that's one of the things that keeps Samsung awake at night. And it's one of the things that they're going to continue to have to 
uh, one of the challenges they're going to continue to have to face uh, in the upcoming years. So it sounds to me that the Chinese smartphone brands basically have almost every segment of the market covered. You have brands that cover you know, maybe something more low-end where they price themselves, you know, to be affordable, the value for money. You have brands like Huawei who also fill the mid to high-end. And so together, no matter which kind of market they enter, whether it's India, whether it's Europe, um, that Chinese smartphone brands will always have a market in those regions. Yeah, and they're replicating, if you will. <laughs> I put air quotes around that word replicating. They're um as you know, a lot of these Chinese phone brands, they're they're spinning off little sub-brands, right? Oppo has spun off a brand called Realme. Uh, Xiaomi spun off its its Redmi brand, but they've also got Poco, which they created. Uh, Vivo just recently released a brand called iQOO, if that's even the right way to pronounce it, I-Q-O-O. Um, and a lot of that is, to kind of your point, they can target different market segments using these brands, right? If a brand is perceived for a particular market segment that they can't shake, well, hey, here's another brand that they can also address by creating a different perception. It's kind of like a, a Lexus and Toyota analogy, right? You can use a different brand to target a different market segment. Where exactly is the growth coming from for these Chinese companies? Is it domestic or is it in more, say, emerging markets, say, Southeast Asia? It's both. Um, Okay, sorry, let me restate that. Uh, I think when they initially were on the rise, obviously a lot of that was in China, and that's when the China market was really surging along. Uh, but as we all know, the China market has flattened itself out as well too. In fact, it's contracted, right? So uh, these guys are naturally looking overseas for their opportunities. India was the most obvious target that they were going after, and many of them went in there quite early, including the likes of Xiaomi in particular. Uh, who's now the number one vendor there, as well as guys like OnePlus and so forth. Um, and when you look at a market like India, the great thing was about the market is we're seeing double-digit growth rates there, right? Compared to a global Chinese, uh, sorry, a global smartphone market that's contracting by single digits, you've got double-digit growth rates in India. Now, disclaimer on that, of course, is that the uh, the average selling price in India is much more different than on a global basis. So in dollar terms, that growth isn't as high, but at least in unit terms, it's much higher. So you see a lot of uh, more growth that's uh, being propelled in these emerging markets. And that's one thing that you know most of these, these vendors are relying on, uh, particularly Xiaomi, of course, but Oppo and then to a lesser degree, Vivo. Is it that for brands like Apple and Samsung, I mean, clearly Apple has abandoned all you know, they're, they're clearly going for the high-end market now with their pricing for their new uh, iPhones and Samsung. Is there this very clear marked difference in strategy between Chinese smartphone makers and like companies like Apple and Samsung? Yeah, I would say that comment applies more so to Apple than Samsung. Samsung's got quite a bit of breath. They'll go down to that low. And in fact, they've recently been launching some uh, online-only uh, brands, the M series, I should say, or product lines, I should say, not brands. They've got the M series that sells only online in markets like India, uh, specifically to go after a lot of the Chinese brands that have been coming in at that mid range. Um, but yeah, I mean, sorry, let me back up a second to your, to your question. I think, um, yeah, Apple and Samsung, you could argue, are more traditional in their approach in the market. Um, a lot of above-the-line advertising, traditional distribution models, uh, beyond just the product positioning, right? I think what makes some of these Chinese vendors interesting is the way that they disrupt. And by the way, I, I know that's an overused term, but I, they, in many cases, some of these vendors are quite disruptive in the way they approach the market. Uh, and I'll use Xiaomi and Oppo as examples here. So, um, uh, 
Xiaomi obviously is one that kind of grew up online initially at least, but a lot of what they did that was quite different from what the big brands did was their user engagement model. They created a huge cult following of, they call them me fans, right? They created this huge cult following of young tech savvy users that, and, and with little micro celebrities, if you will, within the company, right? You know, the people uh, like the say, CEO Leijing who they, you know, they, they will pay money to pay money for tickets to go to a product launch event, right? Um, as much as people want to go to Apple launch events, they don't pay money to go to, but people pay money to go to a Xiaomi launch event, right? Um, and so they've been able to cultivate a, um, you know, quite a bit of a, an interesting user engagement model. They, they, they get a lot of user feedback through online forums, and that in turn drives some of their product designs. And users feel like they make a difference because they suggested, hey, Xiaomi, why don't you build this feature? And then a few months later, suddenly it comes down as a firmware upgrade, right? So they feel that kind of close level of engagement. OnePlus is even more specific when they do that, by the way. They target a very tech-savvy user. Um, but Xiaomi has been quite disruptive in that sense in terms of the way they approach marketing. Now, having said that, obviously, they've had to adjust a bit as they've grown. They, they do more offline stuff now. Um, you know, as they've grown more scale, they're, they're, they're obviously doing a bit more advertising as well, too. But nonetheless, that was quite unique about Xiaomi. Now, Oppo is another really interesting example, not so much in the way that they engage users, but the way that they engage distribution, right? And what I mean by that is they've, in many markets, uh, particularly in developing markets, they disintermediate the channel that they they tend to skip a lot of the big traditional retailers and or sorry distributors I should say, and go straight to the final tier retailers. And the way that they engage is quite different in terms of they require significant amounts of uh, volume commitments. They in many cases don't extend credit. They require them to pay in cash, uh, and they have their own. Uh, Oppo employee promoters that work with these retailers that is quite disruptive as well too, uh, which has really resulted in a lot of Oppo signage. That's the other big thing that they've that works well in these developing markets. These huge Oppo signs everywhere you go. That name just gets plastered in the minds of of consumers. Um, and you know even as we do mystery shopper uh, kind of research, you know just walking to a retail store, we say hey we want to buy the Samsung phone. The store promoter says no, don't buy that. Buy this Oppo one. And, it's part of it's also because he's getting good, um, he or she is getting good incentives uh, from Oppo because uh, of the way that Oppo has structured its channels. It's It's got the margins where they can move a lot of that over to the channels and, and give them incentives. So it's quite interesting in the way that Xiaomi and Oppo have kind of come in here and disrupted things. As much as Samsung has tried to react in markets like India and say, oh, well, we can sell online too. But the problem is then they start to alienate or risk alienation of their traditional online channel uh, offline channels and distributors uh, and so that's what makes it a bit more of a challenge for some of the more traditional incumbents to react to that uh, so anyway i guess like i said these these chinese vendors as they their strategy as they go to market because they can uh they can come in with a clean slate if you will have been it's been quite fascinating to see the different approaches they've been taking as they go to market. And how exactly are consumers perceiving these Chinese smartphone brands as they as they internationalize? Yeah, a great question and, and very timely because uh, we've been doing surveys of consumers around Asia, uh, asking them multiple questions, of course, but one question that we've asked is their perception of phones from Chinese brands like Huawei, Oppo, Vivo, and Xiaomi. Uh, so we surveyed 4,000 consumers around the region, um, and there's a very pronounced uh, 
uh, change in perception for the better in many of these Chinese vendors. Uh, for instance, uh, last year, you know, basically we asked the question on, you know, what do they think of these phones? Do you agree that they have either, say, good quality or good design or uh, good features for money and that kind of thing? Uh, on the point of good quality, that these phones provide good quality, last year, 29% of the respondents around the region uh, agreed with that statement. This year, or I should, sorry, let me restate that because now it's already 2019. So 2017, 29% uh, said that agreed with that that these phones provided good quality. Then 2018, 44% uh, of them agreed that they uh, that these phones provide good quality. Similar kind of trend when we asked about good design. 28% in 2017, 35% in 2018. Um, it does vary by country, which is quite fascinating as well too. Uh, India is one has been one of the most favorable or welcoming uh, of these Chinese brands. In fact, the numbers, if you look at India, on an individual country basis are much higher than the ones that I uh, mentioned earlier for the entire region. So uh, consumers in India, as well as Southeast Asia, many of the Southeast Asia countries have been the strongest in terms of welcoming these Chinese brands. Um, now, perhaps to no surprise, some of the weakest ones uh, were ones that either have a historical or political reason, or even just uh, nationalism. Uh, well, basically, what I'm getting is Korea, again, because of the strength of Samsung, uh, again, the perception of Chinese brands is not as strong there. And then, of course, in uh, markets like Hong Kong and Taiwan, uh, the perception of Chinese brands isn't as strong either. But uh, otherwise, we're looking at a situation where, in general, that perception of Chinese brands has been improving over time. And in some of those geos like India and Southeast Asia, they're some of the strongest. So as we know, for a lot of Chinese phone brands, say like Huawei or even Xiaomi, the US is a big market that they would like to expand into, but very few Chinese brands have had success with it. I think maybe the only one that has some success is OnePlus. And currently with the, the, the climate, the current US-China trade war and sort of technology war, do you think that this will adversely impact these Chinese brands' sort of ambitions in the U.S.? A couple of points. Um, first off, it's actually a bit of a myth that, or misperception that Chinese phone brands haven't been successful in the U.S. Actually, ZTE, uh, prior to, of course, the incident that they had last year, they were, you know, one year ago, uh, they were the number four vendor in uh, the U.S. Granted, they tended to be more... Uh, mid to low end phones tend to be more for uh, prepaid type of subscriptions, that kind of thing. But uh, nonetheless, it is a case where uh, ZTE, uh, Chinese phone brands are actually some of the top vendors in the US market. Uh, obviously ZTE has had its troubles, but TCL, another Chinese phone brand, uh, is actually now the number four vendor in the US. And if you consider Motorola to be a Chinese brand now that they're owned by Lenovo, you could argue that they are also in there too, because Moto's always been, uh, and they've been holding that number five position in the U.S. So it's a bit of a myth uh, that Chinese phones can't crack the U.S. market. But having said that, I think to your question, yes, obviously there are vendors like Huawei and Xiaomi and others that would love to go into the U.S. market. They've had difficulty getting into the U.S. market. And actually the biggest issue uh, is really more about the telcos. If you look at a market like the U.S., it is so heavily operator controlled. Your main distribution, your main means of distribution is through telcos. I mean, to be honest, um, 
you look at a lot of these phone brands, they've been able to sell unlocked phones on Amazon for quite a while to the US market, but it's just such a small part of the market because uh, American consumers are accustomed to buying products, buying their phones through a telco. Um, and so the biggest challenge is really how they can uh, work with the telcos. As you pointed out, OnePlus is a is a good success story, a recent success story of being able to work with T-Mobile. Um, but the other ones haven't quite been as successful yet. Obviously, we're all familiar with you know the incident that Huawei had at CES two years ago, um, uh, where they were ready to announce a partnership with AT&T allegedly, but the government intervened. So I think that kind of is where your point was, right? How much then, even if the telcos are the the choke point uh, or the bottleneck or the linchpin here. I guess the the question is how much does the political environment then influence that? Was the government the one that jumped in, said, hey, AT&T, you should be working with Huawei, and then did the other telcos get scared? Yeah, obviously those that then creates a bit of a shadow. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't make the picture any easier uh, for a lot of these guys, but it's not to say that it's not possible. Again, to that point about OnePlus, they've been able to work with T-Mobile. They've been relatively successful with it. Um, and uh, I think most of these vendors, they're just trying to take it a step at a time. Obviously, they know they can't rush into it, um, especially if there is going to be a fear of Chinese phones. Uh, but uh, again, uh, it's not to say it's completely blocked off. Though. So what are you what are you on the lookout for at MWC? What's what's exciting for you? It's funny. Last year was the year of the notch. <laughs> this year will be the year of the foldables. I think you'll see a lot of uh, hole punch screens and potentially some slider phones. Uh, obviously, you're going to hear a lot about 5G phones. But, you know, quick point on that is don't expect it to get big right away. I think right now it's everyone just trying to say, look, we've got this trophy product. We're, we're one of the first to have 5G. But again, when the networks aren't quite available yet, uh, and network coverage isn't quite as widespread yet. Don't expect 5G to be big just yet, even though we'll hear a lot of hype about it uh, next week. Um, uh, and then, of course, the usual AI stuff and, and so on. What exactly is a 5G phone? Like, would it look like any other phone? Is it just that it runs on a 5G network? You know, if I were if I were a layman consumer, what what exactly is a 5G phone? Yeah, exactly. It's it runs on the 5G network, which is. Uh, faster, could potentially open up interesting applications around, say, live streaming in 4K or in VR. Um, and the worry, of course, was that being a faster, being on a faster network, does this necessarily impact battery life? Does it necessarily impact the physical size of the phone? There are concerns around antennas and whether or not your, you know, your hand might block the signal and that kind of thing. And so there were worries that the phones would be uh, abnormally large. The good thing is when you look at the uh, the initial designs that have come out, uh, they've proven that myth wrong, or they've proven those fears incorrect. These are products that look quite similar to existing 4G phones in terms of size and weight and so forth. So who exactly has released a 5G phone? Well, Samsung showed one last night, right? Um, uh, and we're ba I won't be surprised if we see most of the OEMs announcing stuff uh, in the upcoming week. I mean, OnePlus technically already said back at a at a Qualcomm conference in Hawaii back in December, they said, yeah, we're going to be one of the first with a 5G phone as well. Um, so I won't be surprised if they start to show something uh, in the upcoming week as well. Uh, basically, expect most of the Android OEMs to have some form of a 5G phone, especially if they're working with Qualcomm, right? Because Qualcomm's 
basically got the modems, they've got everything ready, they've got reference design. So these guys are already building these products uh, and are ready to showcase them. Apple may still be another year away, especially since they're using Intel modems. Um, but Apple has never really, Apple's never had the habit of being first to market with these sorts of things anyway. Thanks so much, Brian, for coming on. That just about covers our podcast for today. Thank Thanks you so much, Brian. Thank you. Okay. All right. Yeah, cool. See ya. Ciao. Bye. Okay, so if you would like to look up Brian on Twitter, his Twitter handle is at Brian B. Ma. So that's at B-R-Y-A-N-B-M-A. Brian is super active on Twitter. If you message him on Twitter, he replies like super quick. He is tweeting all the time. I'm sure he'll be tweeting live at MWC. So if you're interested to know what's happening, do follow him there. Also, if you would like to follow me, my Twitter handle is at Zensu, at Z-E-N-S-O-O. Of course, if you would like to read content by us on MWC, we um, we have BN Perez who will be covering MWC live from Spain. Uh, definitely go to scmp.com tech where we are publishing content almost daily. This Inside China Tech podcast is on Spotify, iTunes and Stitcher. So if you enjoy listening to us, please rate us five stars on iTunes. And I'll see you next week. Bye.